0: Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. All right, if you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22 this morning, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll make sure you get one. We are in Matthew chapter 22 this morning, and if you're a guest with us, we want to welcome you. We're so glad you're here, and uh, we have a little... Packet of information for you at our Welcome Center, which is directly across from the sanctuary. If you uh, want a little bit more information about the church and maybe even been here for a while, just go directly to the Welcome Center. There's a little packet there you can grab. And uh, we also want to welcome all of our online audience there to this morning. You guys give them a big hand for joining us this morning. They can't hear you, but that's okay. They are clapping for you and all those who are joining us on our podcast. Matthew chapter uh, 22 this morning if you would stand, we are going to read. We're going to go through quite a bit this morning, but uh, we're going to begin with one verse. It sets the entire rest of the chapter up. Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 15, we read this. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. The impact. That's spoken right there. The wickedness of man's heart. The reality of sinfulness, Lord. And yet to see your love being poured out. Even to those who had already decided in their hearts to reject you. You are relentless for us, Lord. You love us with a love that is beyond our comprehension. And this morning, God, we're asking that you would invade our hearts. That you would arrest us this morning with your love. That we would be found this morning in a collision with grace, Lord. Change our lives. Show us our wicked ways, Lord. Forgive our sins cleanse us this morning. May we embrace your love, Lord. We love you, God. We thank you. And it's truly an honor to be in your presence. We give you all of our attention now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. That passage, Matthew twenty-two fifteen, 15, says it all, man. It talks about how the religious leaders were uh, coming to Jesus. They weren't coming with a heart that desired to know. They weren't coming with a heart that was desiring to change. They were coming with their own preconceived ideas. They didn't really necessarily care about what Jesus had to say and yet they were there to trap Him. It's a sobering word. As I read this, I can't help but to think for myself how weary I would be of the continual rejection, how weary it it, it can be as a Christian, how we, you know, face the difficulty, the battle every day, day in and day out. You wake up, there's an enemy facing you in the mirror, and you're going to battle him all day long, and you have to battle that unbelief in your own heart, and yet we know that Jesus Christ is there facing that enemy, loving you, ministering to you, desiring to, to bring you into his arms, to teach you. The only thing standing in the way is you. Will you humble yourself and receive him? Will you listen to his words? Will you allow him to strengthen you in the battle? Will you grow weary of doing good? Listen, Jesus knows what it feels like to face the battle, the trial. He understands what it feels like to be rejected over and over and over again. He knows how you feel. He's been there. He's done that. And yet we see an example here in the Scriptures of how to approach somebody that is continually doing this to you. Do you reject them and and cast them off? No, Jesus, Jesus speaks truth in love. And he loves them. Let us not come to these kind of passages in the New Testament where we read about the religious leaders in their hardened hearts and even the scathing rebukes of Jesus and think that he isn't loving them, that he isn't, you know, crying inside, that he isn't broken for them as they are unbelieving. I know I can read these passages and I can think, oh, what a bunch of schmucks. What a bunch of losers. And yet I was there. And, don't forget this, in some respects, M, still there. In some respects, where are you not believing this morning? That is the place that Jesus wants to speak to. He wants to draw out that unbelief, and he wants to fill you with faith this morning, but you have to receive it. You receive it this morning? I couldn't help as I was reading this passage to think of my childhood days. I couldn't you know, I, I was thinking, man, it, immediately as I read the, the rest of this chapter, I thought of, uh, you know, as a, as a kid in growing up in Montana, one of my favorite childhood games in, in school, in elementary school, was King of the Hill. You guys ever play that game? It's It's an awesome game. You get to be the king of the hill, and everybody gets to try and bump you off the hill. Right in Montana, we did this in the winter, and they would take the snow plows and they would plow the blacktops so the kids could go out on recess, but they would make these just really pretty irresponsible on their end, these gigantic piles of snow, right? I mean, these things were like 15 feet high. I'm not kidding you. Some kids really got hurt sometimes playing this game. What were our teachers thinking? I don't know. But we used to play it, man. And, and the object of the game, obviously, is to, to get to the top and stay on the top. You're the king. No one can topple you. Everybody else that's on the base of this pile is your enemy. And understand this. Everybody on the base is also enemies of each other. Right? They're not, they're not a team. This is not a team sport. Like, this is all about you, man. But here's what would happen invariably. You know, the, the, the team would... The, the, the enemies would organize... And they would come at the king all at once. And they would try and topple him off. A- and then as soon as he was rolling down the side of this 15-foot embankment, you know, probably in, in peril, you know, I mean, he is really in danger of hurting himself, but nobody cares because they want to be the king. As soon as they, that happens, it's, all for all, it's an all-for-all all brawl to get to the top of that mountain. They don't care about anything else other than you don't, you, all you want to do is get to the top. That's exactly what is happening in this passage. I've entitled the message, King of the Hill, Temple Edition. Here what we find is uh, the religious leaders. The three main sects, Judaism, we find the Pharisees. We find the Sadducees. And we find the Herodians. We find those who have a political bent, those who have an eschatological bent, those who have a theological bent, and that is the fronts that they will come to Jesus on this morning in our passage. They will attack him politically. They will attack him eschatologically, and they will, they will. that means, by the way, it's just speaking about the end times. It's speaking about what will happen, not just necessarily uh, only speaking about the tribulation period. Sometimes we think of eschatology as the study of the, the, you know, last seven years of the world. It, it's more than that. It, it's beyond life. It's also speaking about the final judgment. It's speaking about what happens when we die and where do we go. Where is your eternal destiny? And then we we see them come at him theologically. Well, Jesus, Jesus will address them in love, but he will also have a few questions for them. That's what I love about Jesus. First, we're going to look at the political attack. Look with me in verse... Uh, 16 there it says, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God faith truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinions, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin. Uh, for the tax, and they brought him a denarius. Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and left him and went away. If you were here with us last week, you'll remember that it is Tuesday of Passion Week. Jesus had uh, just finished being addressed by a a representation of the Sanhedrin, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They kind of came at him with a little bit of a team and they said to him, by what authority do you do and say these things? You remember. If you don't, you can pick it up on our website or our podcast. But Jesus, you recall, addresses them and he says, well, you answer me a question first. I love that. I love that. It was a disingenuous question. He knew. He's not going to cast pearls before swine. Uh, We need discernment when we address questions from people that are unbelievers because sometimes they're meant to trap you. Sometimes the questions are solely meant to create division right off the top. And so we need the Holy Spirit to give a specific understanding of how to address every question that we face. And so Jesus, uh, you know, he tells him, I'm not going to tell you because you can't answer this question. And and so he moves on. And, And now it's still that day, Tuesday, and he is in the he, he, takes, uh, he takes them through a series of parables telling them about how Israel had rejected God. Therefore, God had rejected Israel. And the reality of that is that the message for us today is that if you reject God, he will reject you. And that was the message that he was telling them. The nation had rejected him. And he's telling, you know, based on the religious leaders, uh, that God is rejecting the nation of Israel because they have rejected him. And that's the truth of the scriptures. And there is repercussion for rejecting God. And so he goes through that. And, 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 and so we find him today on this day, Tuesday, uh, there in the temple, and he now begins, he's teaching, and now there becomes a confrontation. They try and figure out how to deal with Jesus. Notice it says that they, the Pharisees went and plotted. They were scheming. They were planning an attack on Jesus. You know, listen, it's never the will of God to plot. You should never be at your home trying to figure out how you're going to deal with the person that wronged you or how you're going to address them when you see them. That's called plotting. You know what the Bible says about plotting? It's wickedness. It's wickedness. Psalm 37, 12, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. The Pharisees were allowing the true nature of their heart to come out. They were wicked. Guess what? You and I were wicked redeemed by the grace of God. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, and yet there's still that heart within us to be wicked. And that's why the Bible tells us to guard your heart, for out of its spring, the issues of life, you have to make sure you keep your heart centered on him. The wickedness of these scribes is described for us in Luke chapter 20, verse 20. It says, so they, speaking of the scribes and chief priests there, watched him and sent spies who pretended to be uh, sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority of the jurisdiction of the governor. That was the plot. See it plain as day what they want to do. They want to deliver Jesus up to the jurisdiction of the governor. They think it's perfect. So what do they do? They partner with the governor's people. Hey, let's call the Herodians. The Herodians were people that were pro-Herod. Therefore, they were pro-Rome. If you know anything about about Israel's history, you know that Rome was their enemy. They hated Rome, and therefore, they hated anything that aligned with Rome. They hated tax collectors because they aligned with Rome. They hated Herodians because Herodians wanted, although they wanted a, a, a Herod to rule, they still understood that it, that was still through the power of Rome. That was their issue with the Pharisees. The Pharisees said, you, you, you want a, a Herod to rule, we want the son of David to rule. And so there was a division already, and yet what we find here is they, they unite for the sole purpose of toppling the king, dethroning him from, uh, the, from his hill. You know, Herod from day one wanted Jesus dead. Herod the Great, you recall, Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to, serve, uh, uh, to search for the child and destroy him. He wanted him dead. Why? Because Jesus Christ was a threat to his throne. He was the true king the son of David. And of course, Herod wanted the power and so he he ends up killing everybody that's two years old and under. But Jesus was delivered because he is a deliverer and God sustained him through this time. Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, also wanted Jesus dead. We, we see that in Luke chapter 13, verse 31. And that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. The same Herod that killed John the Baptist is now after Jesus. He wants him dead. The Herods wanted Jesus dead because he threatened their, their throne. The Pharisees want Jesus dead for the same reason. They are threatening their throne. He is taking their power. He's stripping them down. They are not, you know, Jesus' teaching weren't pro-Pharisee, if you know what I mean. When you're called whitewashed tomb, things like that, that doesn't really, you know, give you a lot of power before the people. So the Herodians and the Pharisees join uh, camp, and they try to kill Jesus. Notice how it begins with flattering lips. They, they say, teacher, we know that you're true and teach the way of god truthfully you do not care about anyone's opinion for you're not swayed by appearances oh you're so glorious lord you're so awesome i mean uh, we just love to hear your teaching you're just so incredible what are they doing they are appealing to the insecurities of the flesh what they're doing is appealing to themselves what they they're, they're saying what they want to hear uh, just like you and I do. We appeal to the flesh oftentimes. We have to be careful. The Pharisees uh, thought that Jesus was, was just longing for them to like him. Oh, if only they would like me. Oh, you mean you guys actually like me now? Oh, so thank you, Lord. I'm so grateful. No. Perfection doesn't have insecurity. Jesus Christ had no insecurities. He had no deficiencies. He wasn't longing for man to love him, although he loved man far more. With, a, with an unconditional kind of love, he loved them. And he still loves these guys even though they're trying to trap him. He knows what's going on. He doesn't let his guard down. You can't fool Jesus. He knows. Listen, you can fool me. You can fool you know other people, but you cannot fool Jesus Christ. He sees right through the lies they ask him this question is it lawful to pay tax to Caesar or not well what kind of a question is that is that a question of is it lawful in terms of the law of the land of course because Rome had instituted that land that's not what they're asking they're saying is God okay does God require us to pay these losers is God wanting us to pay them they don't want to pay them they're asking him a question that they know is going to get him in trouble. Jesus is, and of course, you know, as a man, you approach a situation like that, and you're like, I have to pick one, ex- one extreme or the other, right? It's either Calvinist or Arminius. It's not, can't be in between. So you, you, you're automatically, you know, faced with having to pick one extreme or the other. You don't have to pick the extreme. You pick what the Scripture says. Here's what happens here. Jesus comes to them and he immediately calls out their hypocrisy. Why? Well, just show me the money you have in your pocket. Well, that money is good enough for you to spend. It's good enough for you to keep, and yet you don't want to pay anything for it. What they're trying to do is say, "We want the money. We love the money, and they loved money. They were ripping the people off. They loved money so much, and yet they didn't want to give any of it to Rome." And Jesus says, well, we'll just pull a coin out. Whose face does it have on it? it's got Caesar's face on it, of course. Well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You know, it's interesting when you see that because oftentimes man wants to reject. There are people even today that are in the name of God, you know, uh, trying to reject the government and what the government's doing. And yet, what does the Scripture say? It tells us to submit to government authorities. Why? Because God put them in place, right? Peter said it like this in 1 Peter 2.17, Fear God and honor the emperor. Fear God and honor the emperor. What Jesus is saying is, you guys, you guys are silly, man. You don't understand power at all. You don't understand structure. You don't understand God. Because God put this all in place. And he's using all of this. He's orchestrated all of this. He has drawn this moment in history to be the way it is for his purpose. And he's saying, yes, it is lawful because God is the one that put it in place. And so pay your taxes. Do what's right. And yet he also says this, and give to God what is God's. You know, your... You have an image on you, see image of God, just as much as that coin has an image of Caesar on it. You have an image of God on you. The, the, the things that he has equipped you with, the giftings that he's given you, all that he has given you, you give some back to him. That's what you're called to do. And if you don't, you miss out. So many people look at giving as, as a mandate. Like, oh, I've just got to do it. It's so painful though, to, to, to write the check to the Lord, to give my time up for the Lord, but, but I'll watch football for three or four hours or I'll, uh, you know, I'll spend money on you know, a pay-per-view you know, game for 100 bucks, but I won't give God a dime and I won't give Him any of my time. But He gave you the ability to do everything you do. Don't forget you bear the image of God and therefore... You, by nature, just as he's saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar, ought to give God what is God's. There's a blessing in it. Deuteronomy chapter 15, 10 says, you shall give to him freely. That was always God's heart with giving. Not begrudgingly. Not because you had to, because you get to. You're supposed to give freely. And your heart shall not be uh, grudging when you give to him because... For this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Unlike Caesar, God won't come after you for it. You just miss the blessing. You miss the blessing. Here we see the, I can imagine in my mind the, the Pharisees radioing back to, 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 the, to the command central, you know, no joy, no joy. He's busted us, man. There's no, we, we're, we're not going anywhere with this one. The political attack has failed. Retreat. And now they move to an eschatological front. Look at verse 23. The same day Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife and his brother. So, too, the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what is said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. It's the same day. It's the same place. Plot number one has failed. Now they move on to plot number two. They ask him an eschatological question about the resurrection and it's by way of the Sadducees. This is funny. If you know anything about the Sadducees, you know that their, their end time view, that what they believed of, about life after death is that it didn't exist. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And you all know why that's, they're so sad, you see. Of course. of course. You don't, did you go to children's church ever? You know, sad you see. Yeah, you got it. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they disagreed on this issue. They had a major disagreement on it to the point where they parted ways, and they said, hey, they were part of, you know, there was lots of Sanhedrin, a uh, part of the Sanhedrin, lots of them were Sadducees. Some of them were Pharisees, but they, uh, you know, as it related to this issue, they just totally disagreed. So what are they doing? They're bringing up some very, very divisional questions on purpose. They want to sway the people. They know the crowd is with Jesus, and the whole point of all of this is to sway the people, to trap Jesus in his own words. And and how often are we offended when people don't see things our way? We have a conversation with somebody, and they're like, Oh, you don't believe in that? Oh my gosh, you're not a Christian. You know, but it's a secondary issue or something, and then you divide over it. That's called the devil. We do not divide over secondary issues. As brothers and sisters, we're, we're in Christ. Now, that doesn't, that's why there's different churches, and you can go be a part of a church that you, you know, believe in. But I promise you, you will never find a church that believes exactly what you believe unless you're the one teaching there. And then sometimes you don't even believe yourself. Sometimes you're, like, <laughs> conflicted. You're like, man, I don't believe you. I don't believe you either. And so you become divided. These guys were also pro-Herod, the Sadducees were. Why? Because they love money. They love money. They were living for the now because they didn't believe in, the, in there was a future for them. What a pointless existence. How do you go to the temple every day with, to God and, and, and you know, you, you're getting all this money? That's, that's, that's the motivation, obviously, but you're going to the temple and you're watching people just you know give you their money and you don't believe that anything will ever come out of it. Some people come to church like that. Some people don't believe fully and embrace, you know, the resurrection. They don't understand it. They don't ask questions. They don't seek the Lord on it. They just don't believe it. But they come. And it's a form of religion. Well, it just makes me a better person. Does it? Are you a better person? Not unless Jesus is in there. Not unless Jesus is inside (laughs) <laughs> the Sadducees, man, they don't, even, they don't give Jesus the credit of even flattering him here. Like, they're just full-on mocking him. Hey, we got a question for you, teacher. If a man dies and having no children and his brother must marry him, the widow, you, you, you know, and raise up an offering for his brother, then, you know, how does that work in the resurrection? How, whose, whose wife will she be? The question comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25. It's legitimate. This is a law. This is what God put in instituted. It's called the law of leveret marriage, the law of leveret marriage. And the the idea was that the the brother would would produce the offspring of the firstborn because that was where the blessing was. And so there needed to be an offspring. The firstborn would carry the family name. So so God puts this in place. And um, Moses had written that when a man died without a son, his unmarried brother or nearest relative was to marry the widow and produce uh, children. The first son of this marriage was considered to be the heir of the dead man. You recall in Genesis chapter 38 when uh, Judah's son Ur er died and Tamarah, the daughter, was, you know, supposed to take Onan. Uh, the, you know, he, Onan was supposed to take her as his wife and he wouldn't impregnate her because Why? The firstborn would not be his. And so he wouldn't do what the law required. He was wicked in in the sight of the Lord. The main purpose of this was to produce an heir and guarantee the family wouldn't lose their land. We see this same, the leveret marriage principle applied in the book of Ruth, where you see Boaz, he is the nearest relative. You see him act as not only the kinsman redeemer. Not only as a picture of Christ, but also as a fulfillment of Deuteronomy chapter 25. Where he took Ruth to be his wife. Because in that time, that's how they dealt with. If you didn't have a husband, you didn't have a way to make a living. It's not like you could just go get a job at McDonald's. Didn't work that way. You worked the land. That was the way that you lived. So God provided for them in this way. Boaz was an incredible picture of redemption. Redemption. And, of course, we can't go into the kinsman redeemer thing this morning because that would take too much time, but it's a story for a different time. But but Boaz redeemed them just as Christ has redeemed you by his blood. He paid the price. The Sadducees aren't asking if it's lawful for them to marry, for the brother to take the wife after the brother dies, all that. That's not what they're asking. What they're asking is what happens at the resurrection? Whose wife is she? And Jesus... Just as plainly as they came to him and their unbelief of the resurrection, he just plainly states the fact that they are wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. First off, you don't know the scriptures. Secondly, you don't know the power of God. You don't know the scriptures. Now, if you're a religious leader, that hurts. You don't know the power of God. What do you mean? I'm part of the Sanhedrin. You don't don't think I know the power of God? I am the power of God exactly in the flesh. You're the power of the flesh. You're the power of the devil is what you are. They don't understand the scriptures, what the word teaches. There is no marriage in heaven, Jesus says. You're not given into marriage. And, you know, none of that happens in in heaven. Maybe that's a newsflash for you this morning. You know, when, when I first heard that, man, I, my wife and I moped around for a couple days at our house. It's like, man, I'm not going to be married to you. That's so weird. And we started practicing it right then. No, we didn't. But <laughs> we didn't. We didn't. But it was. It was a bummer. We were like, man, so bummed out about it. But, but understand, you won't be bummed in heaven. You won't be lacking anything. You'll be married to Christ. And I, again, this is conjecture, my own opinion, but I, I believe I'll know my wife in heaven. I believe I'll know who she is and that I was her husband and all that kind of stuff, and, and she just won't remember all the bad things about me. <laughs> so she'll love me the way right, right where I am there. We will be listen, we will be like the angels. Contrary to popular belief, we do not become angels. Every time a person dies, you know, I, I, I hear them, oh, God's got another angel. No, he doesn't. He does not have another angel. We do not become angels. I know some of you guys want to be chubby little guys with wings coming out your back, you know, shooting bow and arrows and stuff like that. But you will not. You might be chubby. I'm not saying you won't be. You might be. People got to be able to recognize you. So, um, you know. But, uh we will become like the angels. They, they're, not, they're, they're married to, to, to God as the center. He is their everything, and He will be your everything. God and God alone, they are in a relationship with Him. So He tells them they don't know the Scriptures. Secondly, they don't know the power of God. They don't understand the power of God. Jesus said, as for the resurrection of the dead... Not as if it's a myth. As for it, it will happen. You don't understand the power of God. You're limiting God. He is not the God of the dead, but He is the God of the living. Those that follow Him, though they may die, they shall rise again by faith through Jesus Christ. They didn't understand it. And yet Jesus makes it plain for them God is big enough to raise you from the dead there is a resurrection. The political tack fails. The eschological tack fails. Now they move on to the theology. Look at verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest command of the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. Now, Matthew 12, 28 gives us a little bit more information about this person that's asking the question. It says, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him which commandment is the most important of all. Uh, This scribe, Just observing Jesus. Whether he's sincere or not, I I don't know. But I can only imagine that he says, I'm smart enough to trick Jesus. I think I can stumble him. Let me ask him a, a theological question. Again, one that is just very controversial. Which one is the greatest commandment? Tell me, Jesus, which is the greatest in the law? This would start a fist fight in the synagogue, this kind of question. There, this was a heated debate about the commandments. This was a serious thing. They took the law of God so serious that they went beyond even what it said because they didn't want to violate it. And so they were very reverent about it in the wrong way, in a very religious way, in a self-righteous way. How many commands are in the Old Testament? How many of them? Huh? Exactly, 10 and 613 both. The 10s contained in the 613. The 613 is in the Pentateuch, the first 5 books of the Bible. It, it, it's considered the law, you know, to encompass all of the law, everything that God spoke about. But all of those 613 came out of the 10. They're all related to the 10. They all pointed to the 10. So, you know, the 10 were the umbrella. The 613 were the practical application of working out the 10. The 10 were divided into two groups. The first four were related, man's relationship to God. The the last six were, uh, you know, Man's relationship with man. The 613 was all of that being worked out in your life, how that worked. Which law is the greatest? Which one, Jesus, out of the 613? These guys would spend hours debating each other, trying to figure out which one was the weightier. Some of them would, you know, categorize the law, and they'd say, well, these are the major laws, these are the minor laws, you know, and some of them would say, listen, it doesn't matter what law it is, they're all... Equal, they're all equally important. You break one, you break them all. That's biblical. It's in the Bible. Which one, Jesus? Is it one of the 248 positive commands that are the you shall do this? Or is it part of the 365 negative commands that say you shall not do this? Which one? Jesus says, man, that's easy. You start with God. It's always God first. Always God first. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love him. Cherish him. Embrace him. Follow him. Love him with everything that you have, he says. There's not a lot of room for self-righteousness in that. He appeals to the law of love, and he says, you've got to love both of them. All, all, both of what he says here, you know, the second commandment he says is love, love your brother. Isn't that funny? Because the Ten Commandments are split up into two parts. One, love God. One, love man. So Jesus basically summarizes the Ten Commandments, and he says, just love God and then love man. And everything hangs upon that. Are we supposed to love God? Are we supposed to love man? Are we spo- then if we do that, will we not keep the commandments? If we're truly doing that. Not as a law, not as because we're under the law. What I'm saying is, wouldn't you just naturally do that? Of course you would. That's the way that God set it up. It was never meant to be religious. It was supposed to be birthed in love. Listen to me, I don't cheat on my wife. Because I'm afraid of the consequences. I don't cheat on my wife because I love her. And she loves me. If I love her, I'm going to do what's right for her. I'm going to love her. I'm going to minister to her. I'm not going to break her heart. If you love God, you will do what he says. That's what Jesus says right here in John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, you will Keep my commandments. You will. Now, well, but we're all sinners, man. I don't know. Is there any kind of like leniency in there? Like, is that kind of gray? No. You will keep my commandments. What's the problem? We don't love him. We don't love him, but he loves you, and thank God for that. And I'm not here to judge what percentage of love that you love God But as I'm confronted with a scripture like love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, I'm convicted to the core. And I say, Lord, help me to love you like that. If I do, I won't err. I won't stray. Help me to be centered on you. Help me to love you like that, God. Why is the church in the state that it's in because prophetically, it says that the what of many will grow cold? The love of many will grow cold. Not just the love for one another, guys. It's the love for him. It's impossible for you and I to love one another if we're not loving him first. If we're not centered on him, if we're not making him our everything, because out of that, relationships burst everything horizontal. When you come vertically to God and you center yourself on Him, isn't it funny how the vertical, regardless of the circumstances, seems to go a lot better? It's because you have that relationship, right? Because when God is on your side, who can be against you? When you're centered on God, when you're doing what He wants you to do, no one can stand in your way. It's His love. His love will constrain you. Paul said that. When you consider His love, when you're loving Him with everything you've got and you are faced with the love that He has for you that just continually is over, you know, just blows your mind. Paul says this. His love will constrain you, 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. How can you, uh, you know, not keep his commandments if you're not living for yourself? Did that make sense? Probably didn't. That was like a double negative there. What I'm saying is, is how can you, you know, if you're keeping his commandments, you're going to do what's right. That's my point. If you're loving him, it's his love. When you consider his love, you love him, his love comes upon you, and you're like, oh, Lord, I don't want to. Just like my wife, I love her and she loves me and I don't want to break her heart. I love the Lord and I'm going to do what's right. Jesus is slaying these fools, man. He's nailing these guys, but he loves them. And he's teaching them the truth. And he's ministering to them. Three failed attempts to push the king off the hill. Failed, failed, failed. So Jesus says, now let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. any more questions? Jesus said, Enough is enough. Let me attack the, the the real issue, the heart of the issue here is who's the Messiah? You've asked me multiple times, Am I the Messiah? I've told you multiple times, I've showed you multiple times who I am. You still reject me. Let me explain something to you about the Messiah. He's not just the son of David, he is the God of David. He's not just the son. He's the God of David. David was given an unconditional covenant. In 2 Samuel 7.16, it says this, In your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. It wasn't based on David. This was based on the sovereignty of God and his plan of Redemption. He chose David's house to bring the Messiah through. So he said, your throne is established forever, David. It's not conditional. It's not based on you at all. Just like Christ dying on the cross for you is not based on on anything you've done. It's all based on Him. It's on His love. His love for you. The religious leaders understood that. They understood that that condition that there was the Davidic covenant in place, and they were waiting for that to be fulfilled. Jesus is trying to show them the flaw in their theology. He's saying, you kind of have it right, but you're missing the bigger picture. Probably the more important thing is that not only is he the son of David, but he's the son of God, which means he's God. How can you be the son of God if God's not part of your DNA? He's God. He's God. He didn't have a father. He didn't have an earthly father. He had the Holy Spirit that impregnated Mary and that the DNA of God was in place within him. I don't know if they put a little Jesus in her womb, how that worked, but all I know is God came down and he inhabited this earth. They understood Matthew when Matthew was saying 1, 1, in Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the genealogy of Jesus, that he was the son of David, what they missed is that he's the son of God. Jesus, it's interesting that he fulfilled the prophecy of being the son of David through both his parents. Is that crazy? Through Joseph, as the legal father of Jesus, he had the bloodline of, Christ, of, of David. Through Mary also, She had the bloodline of David. So it was, it was legally through his earthly father, but it was by the through the bloodline of his mother that he fulfilled this. You think like, wow, how does that happen? How can God come down, fulfill this if he's not not fully man, but he's God at the same time? How does that work? That's how it works. That's how he did it. It's amazing. Jesus is the son of David, and he is more than that. He is the son of God. That's as he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1 there. How is it then that David, in his spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies at your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? The Messiah was to be far more than an earthly descendant of David. He was to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He was to be God. Only Jesus can meet these requirements. Is he not reaching out to them right there after they've just questioned him three times? Is he not loving them enough to say, let me just give you one more chance. Just as Judas were to come in the garden of Gethsemane and he would betray him with a kiss and Jesus would say, friend. Why have you come like reaching out to him saying, don't do it, man. I love you. Don't do it. That's how I see Jesus in in this last approach to them. He's not trying to silence them. He's trying to reach them. He loves them. And he loves you. And he's doing that with you over and over and over again. And I don't know what area of your life that you're not allowing him to reach you. But he is continually coming at you at the same place, and he's saying, if you will just trust me in this, if you just believe me in this, I can do it. But you've got to release your fear. You've got to have faith in me today. He loves you. No matter how much you reject him, he will still love you. But he will judge you if you don't receive him. The religious leaders, man, they are conspiring and plotting against Jesus because they're wicked. They need him. You and I conspire and we in try and entrap each other because we're wicked. And we need God to invade the wickedness of our hearts, whatever, wherever that is. If there's places of unforgiveness in your heart, if there's, pla- you know, whatever the place is, if you're not relinquishing something, if you're holding on to something that He is not Lord of all, and He's calling us today to that place to crown Him the King, you will not ever dethrone Him. You can come at Him with everything you got. You can unite with your enemies. You can come at Him all at the same time, and He will not be dethroned. You can't do it. And so the better thing to do is to surrender to Him to lay your life down at his feet and say, Lord, everything that I have, I'm yours. I want to love you with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, with all my mind today in Jesus' name. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness to us and for loving us even in our unbelief, Lord. We thank you for the redemption of your son, Lord. The blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin and it's by faith that we receive that. Yet even as believers, Lord, there are times that we withhold wickedness in our hearts, that we conspire and we plot. Lord, would you forgive us this morning? As you would convict our heart this morning that we would respond to you by faith. We would say, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this place that I find myself in this morning, but I know it's possible through you. And so I'm going to release this thing to you this morning and I'm going to ask you to give me power to love you more in this area of my life. To love you more than that thing that I'm loving, that I'm giving my life up for. The thing that I'm dabbling with that that brings me pleasure, Lord. I'm going to love you more in that area. I'm asking you even now to empower me by your spirit, Lord. I want to receive that power in my life this morning. If that's you, all God is asking you to do is reach out by faith this morning. If you don't know him, come to know him. If you're struggling, then you know what? Receive his strength this morning. If you're downtrodden and you're discouraged, listen to his voice this morning encouraging you, loving on you saying, just trust me. I'll strengthen you through the, through the madness, through the, through the sorrow. Right? There's pain in the offering, and yet there is dancing in my tears. And so wherever you find yourself this morning, the altar is open. You can come forward and you can pray with your, you know, on your own, or you, there'll be people up here to pray with you as we just take these last few minutes to give the Lord our hearts, to love Him with all our hearts, all our soul in all our minds. Let's stand and worship him. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.